If I had to guess, I would say you've probably heard of Kellogg's cornflakes. But did you know that cornflakes were invented to stop people from masturbating? Well, hello there. I'm Christina. You're listening to History and Hearsay. And today's episode is about to get weird. John Kellogg was a celebrated doctor whose life mission was to improve the health of Americans by treating the body and the mind. He was a highly eccentric individual who's credited with creating the whole idea of wellness as an industry. Most of his work was accomplished at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was basically what we would call a wellness spa, except that the treatments his customers received were a bit more unorthodox than what you would find in the average spa today. If you take a look at John's childhood, his dedication to health will make a bit more sense. John was one of 16 children, six of which died from infectious disease, and John himself was a pretty sickly child who suffered from various ailments. John's parents were Seventh-day Adventists who believed that the second coming of Jesus Christ was just around the corner, and so they really just didn't see the point in giving their children an education. Because of this, John only went to school from the time he was nine until he was 11, at which point he was sent to work in his father's broom factory. During the this time, John's parents had gotten pretty close to the leaders of their local sect of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who were James and Ellen White. And when the Whites decided to open up a wellness institute, it said that the Kelloggs are the ones who convinced them to set up their main headquarters in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, despite his parents' lack of interest in giving their children a formal education, John was a very curious and bright boy, and it was said that he used any books he could get his hands on to educate himself. John's potential quickly became obvious to those around him, including the Whites, who asked him to come and work for them. So at the age of 12, John becomes an apprentice at the Whites print shop. And at first, he was basically just an errand boy for the Whites, but eventually he started proofreading and even editing for them. The works John was editing were religious writings for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, including ideas the Whites had on health and wellness. And this meant that John was deeply immersed in those beliefs from a young age. John developed a close relationship with the Whites, and he was all in when it came to the ideas that they wrote about. The Whites recognized that John was intelligent and that he had great potential to further their ideas. And so when it was decided that John would become a doctor, the church supported John going to medical school and gave him a job after he graduated. Now, back in those days, becoming a doctor only took about two years. The field was still pretty experimental and formal education to become a doctor was really just interning with an existing doctor. You would basically just follow them around, watch what they did, and I'm sure you practice and stuff like that, but after two years of that, your education was complete. Once John completed his training at the age of 24 years old, the Seventh-day Adventist Church made him the head of their Health Reform Institute, which he later renamed the Battle Creek Medical Surgical Sanitarium. The word sanitarium was used as a clever way to kind of suggest that this institute, while offering hospital care, also placed a high importance on sanitation and personal health. Once John took over, he was able to grow this business very rapidly by combining the medical center aspects with a spa and grand hotel type atmosphere. And it wasn't long before the Battle Creek Sanitarium was considered the place to go. The brochure promised a cool and delightful summer resting place. And if you were an affluent American who also happened to be in poor health, it was highly likely that you would consider a stay at this world-renowned health complex. Upon arrival at the sanitarium, guests were greeted by beautiful gardens with clients scattered about sunbathing or enjoying a walk. The lobby was filled with fine furniture, crystal chandelier, and 
plush Parisian rugs. A walk down the halls of this elite complex might mean brushing shoulders with the likes of Henry Ford or Thomas Edison. Of course, there may also have been the occasional scream from a remote treatment room, but more on that in a bit. As for John Kellogg, he could be found riding his bike around the complex wearing all white from his suit down to his shoes. To make him even more interesting, he often had a white cockatoo perched on his shoulder and a very frazzled man running behind him. That poor soul was not only John's assistant, but his very mistreated younger brother, Will Keith Kellogg, who was better known as W.K. Kellogg. And he was running behind John in order to dictate the notes that apparently couldn't wait for after John finished his exercise. The treatment methods developed at the sanitarium were heavily inspired by John's Adventist beliefs in which he believed the body was the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore the body should be nurtured and protected at all costs. Many of the recommendations were pretty good. They included things like exercise, getting fresh air, plenty of sleep, practicing good hygiene, and eating nutritious, easy-to-digest foods. John referred to this set of practices as biological living, and many of his treatments for illnesses were grounded in dietary restrictions. He instructed his guests to avoid meat, alcohol, tobacco, sugar, and caffeine. So basically all the same advice your doctor's giving you today. If you enjoy it, avoid it. But many of his other ideas and methods were a bit more off the beaten path. John was a firm believer in the methods of Horace Fletcher, who was known as the Great Masticator. Fletcher advocated that you should chew continuously until your food was completely liquefied prior to swallowing. He believed that this aided in digestion and Fletcher even claimed that liquids too had to be chewed in order for it to get properly mixed with your saliva. Taking Fletcher's advice, John encouraged all of his guests to chew their food 40 times before swallowing. That is a lot of chewing. Just for reference, I counted when I was eating the other day and I'm pretty sure I only chew my food like five times, maybe 10 at the max. But never fear, John had the perfect solution to motivate them. He had a cheering song that he played to motivate them. (laughs) I'm not even joking. The chorus was, chew, chew, chew. That is the thing to do. Chew, 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 that's the thing to do. Another of John's treatments revolved around the healing effects of artificial light. These treatments claimed to cure everything from depression to diabetes. And this involved patients either lying down in a type of an like old timey tanning bed or standing up in a shower of artificial light. After getting their light bath treatment, guests could continue the cleanse with an enema, which... If you're not familiar with what that is, it involves shoving a tube up your out hole and pumping salt water into your bowels. You might wonder why someone would want to do such a thing. Well, many people still do it today to clean everything out or even as a weight loss method. If you're someone who likes to do this, don't worry. I'm not judging you. Actually, that's a lie. I'm 100% judging you. As you've probably already gathered, John was a go-getting, innovative type of guy. So he didn't stop at any regular old enema. No, no, no. He developed a special machine that gave you a super enema. This bad boy would pump 14 liters of water per minute into his patient's bowels. 
And if that's not enough, he moved on to giving yogurt enemas, which consisted of having his patients eat half of a pint of yogurt, and then the other half went right up the out hole. John believed this treatment provided his patients with protective germs and a clean intestine. Another of his treatments involved strapping people into vibrating chairs. Now, these weren't the relaxing massage chairs that we have nowadays. These were plain wooden chairs that would basically try to shake your brains out. These chairs were said to violently shake you for up to 60 times per second. Not per minute, per second. And if that didn't rattle you enough, you could add a flogging treatment to the experience. This slapping machine would give you a pounding. I'm not sure what that part was supposed to do, but if you're thinking this is taking a certain turn towards something steamy, banish those thoughts. Because John believed that any sex outside of procreation, even inside of a marriage, was completely against nature and the root cause of all of society's problems. Now, you might be thinking, what in the BDSM is this guy going on about? But it seems as though John practiced what he preached because he claimed, and it is believed by historians, that he never consummated his 40-year marriage. He spent their honeymoon writing a book and all of their children were adopted. John felt that flirts were just the worst kind of villains who deserved the hottest fires in hell. I bet he had a lot of pent-up energy and thought everybody was flirting with him. He also had very strong opinions on masturbation and thought it was a violation of natural law that caused all types of health issues from memory loss, impaired vision, to epilepsy, and even insanity. This is probably like, nope, tried that once, had a seizure. Now, John's treatments to help his guests who were struggling with masturbation, this is where things get really weird. His first approach was pretty straightforward. He would simply tie their hands up whenever they were alone. Simple enough. If that didn't work, he would move on to bandaging their penis or placing it in a cage. And if none of that did the trick, Dr. Kellogg advocated for performing a circumcision without anesthetic. If you don't know what circumcision is, you're probably too young to be watching this video. But if you're an adult, I'll just let you Google that one for yourself. Just whatever you do, do not click the images tab. As crazy as his ideas sound, Dr. John Kellogg truly believed in what he was doing and he proved it when he performed the procedure on himself. So I don't know if this means he actually did it to himself because how would that even be possible? Or if he just had another doctor do it for him. But either way, he was 37 years old when he had a circumcision without anesthetic. And this was all because he believed it created an effect on the mind where the victim or patient would associate touching their penis with pain. There was seriously something strange going on here. This dude should have just had sex with his wife. And if all of that did not get you on the straight and narrow, Dr. Kellogg had a final treatment that was extremely barbaric and involved the foreskin, a needle, and metal wire. Once someone had this procedure done, erections would be impossible. I guess that's one way to handle temptation. I kind of just wish someone had explained to him that that wasn't a seizure. 
The part of all this that is truly disturbing is that many of the patients for these procedures were young boys and girls didn't get off easy either. That came out wrong. John also had a treatment for girls who were struggling with this ailment where he would apply carbolic acid to their private areas. And when that didn't work, he would surgically remove that certain part to make any self-pleasuring activity impossible. And again, as horrific and barbaric as all of this sounds, the worst part to me is that he was actually performing these procedures on children. I just cannot even wrap my brain around that. So at this point, you might be wondering, what in the world does any of this have to do with cereal? <laughs> well, John believed that the best way to prevent sexual stimulation in the first place was to have a bland diet. During the period of time when John grew up, Americans were eating very heavy, starchy, and fatty breakfasts. And to be fair, it is well documented that many of the ailments Americans were suffering from at the time was due to poor diet kind of like it still is today. And so John decided he wanted to create a breakfast food that would be easier to chew, easy to digest, and bland enough that it wouldn't add any excitement to your day. Because as we all know, a tasty breakfast only leads to one thing. So when John first set about to create this new breakfast food, he started by using a basic recipe that came from a Seventh-day Adventist by the name of James Caleb Jackson. James was a nutritionist who was also an advocate of bland eating and had developed a dry whole grain breakfast cereal that was so hard it had to be soaked in milk overnight in order to be edible. He called this granula. John and his employees took what they learned from James and they spent many hours experimenting with various recipes in the lab and this pursuit would eventually lead to cornflakes being invented. But we can't talk about the creation of cornflakes without filling in some details on John's little brother, Will. John and Will, they didn't have the best relationship growing up. John would often mistreat Will, not only in the normal brotherly things like tattletelling on him to their strict parents, but John, who was eight years older, would even spank Will if he felt that Will needed to be punished for some wrongdoing. And because he was his parents' favorite, John got away with this treatment of Will. Once they were older, Will must have decided to let bygones be bygones because when John offered him a job at the sanitarium, Will accepted. Now I'm thinking maybe Will thought that they had moved past their childhood and that things would be different, but that didn't seem to be the case because once working together, John continued to push Will around. Will often worked up to 120 hours per week for a very low wage. His duties included keeping the books for John, shaving him, and taking notes for him, which sounds easy enough, but it seems to me as though John kind of enjoyed humiliating his younger brother because in addition to making him run behind his bicycle taking notes, John also had Will accompanying him to the bathroom. Like, his mind was so brilliant that it couldn't wait five minutes. And it said that John went number two at least five times a day, which is what he thought was a healthy number and what he was trying to get most of his patients to to achieve. In addition to his assistant type duties, Will also helped out in the sanitarium's kitchen, making foods and helping to develop new recipes. In 1877, John had invented a breakfast biscuit for his guests, which was a mixture of flour, oats, and cornmeal that he baked twice at a very high temperature to make it easier to digest. Which there is some truth to that part of his theory at least, and many of the people who came to John had a lot of issues with terrible heartburn, indigestion, 
and constipation, as well as a host of other intestinal issues. And while he got a bunch of things terribly, terribly wrong, it sounds as though he got enough right that he was able to help quite a few people with their issues, which is why his clinic spa had such a good reputation for so many years. So if we get back to the biscuit, it's completely bland and it's hard as a rock. So one day, one of their guests actually breaks her tooth off on this biscuit. And so she's like, you know, dude, what the heck? And so John knows that he has to kind of change something up. And so he smashes it up in order to make it easier for his guests to eat. And he calls it granola, not to be confused with his predecessor's granula, not granula, it's granola, totally different. One night in 1898, while mixing up a batch of this granola, Will made the best mistake of his life when he accidentally left a batch of this dough out overnight. The next morning when he comes in, he discovers his mistake, but he's like, meh, couldn't be any worse than it already is. And so he went ahead and rolled out this bacteria-infused dough, which ended up producing these perfectly thin flakes that become crispier and tastier once baked. He had just accidentally created the world's first flaked cereal. Will continued to experiment with this recipe and eventually replaced the wheat with corn, which produced flakes that were even crunchier. The cereal was a huge hit with the patients in the sanitarium. They were probably excited at the prospect of not having to break their teeth off on their breakfast. And once Will started to advertise the cereal to the general public, it became a huge success there as well. While Will's getting excited about the prospects of how successful corn flakes really could become, John, he just wasn't that concerned with making money. He was was much too busy trying to heal the world's stomach issues and preventing the pesky issue of masturbation, which he thought was a much bigger issue than I ever realized. Did you know about this? However, it turns out that Will was a natural-born businessman. During this time, there were a few other cereals on the market, but there wasn't anything that actually tasted good. And Will, he just knew that if he added sugar to the flakes, then the cereal would be much more competitive. And so he tries it out. John overhears it and he is furious. Of course, he's completely against this because he fears that the sweet taste would instantly lead to the uncontrollable urge to fondle oneself. Sugar being the little minx that she is. So John forbade Will to ever add anything to the cereal that would make it taste better. At this point though, Will, he's kind of just over John and all of his ridiculousness. I'm betting after he tasted the sugar in his cereal, he's like, this tastes great and not a single seizure. John is such a liar. Will decides to go rogue. He goes out on his own and he buys the rights to manufacture what he calls cornflakes. And he founded the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company in 1906. Okay, so maybe he still had a thing or two to learn about marketing, but luckily for him, there was nothing tastier on the market and his cereals became enormously successful. Within just three years, Will was producing 120,000 boxes of cornflakes per day. And with a little practice, it turns out that Will was as creative with advertising as John was at coming up with new medical treatments. Will's cereal company was the first one to include a toy inside the box, and he was also the first one to include a nutrition label, and he even came up with these random creative marketing campaigns, like the one where he told readers to wink at your grocer and see what you get. 
Was he encouraging people to flirt? It's almost like he was trying to shove it in John's face. What would the flirt get for their wink? Why a free sample of cornflakes, of course. Can you imagine if you were working at a grocery store and nobody filled you in on this campaign? And you're like, like, what is going on today? As luck would have it, this marketing campaign was highly successful. And because of Will's creativity and probably also the fact that he was filling a need in the market for a quick breakfast that actually tasted good, the brand experienced a rapid boost in sales. Of course, John wasn't very happy about this. He didn't like that Will was using the Kellogg name for his Sinfil or sugar-laden cereals. And Will had an issue that John was using the Kellogg name because he worried that a bland, tasteless cereal going by the family name would damage his own company's branding. Will started signing his boxes with WK Kellogg. He had like these messaging on his boxes, like don't be fooled by imitators or something to that effect. And eventually he actually ended up deciding that he was going to sue John so that he would be the one to basically have the exclusive rights to be able to use Kellogg for his cereal. And so John decided to sue him right back. John believed he had the rights to the Kellogg name because he had used it first for his business and he was pretty famous in the country for the work he had done in the wellness industry and the multiple books he had written. But Will had spent a pretty penny on advertising and this is what had actually made Kellogg a household name. Will and John engaged in a legal battle that lasted for nearly 10 years until eventually a judge decided that while John was obviously the more famous of the two brothers, Kellogg was only a household name because of the marketing behind cornflakes. So Will won the court battle and in 1922, he was able to establish the Kellogg's Cereal Company. This is when the very famous rooster mascot was introduced. Now Will says that he came up with this idea for the mascot when he realized the Welsh word for rooster, Kellogg, sounds a little like Kellogg, but personally, I think this was another screw you to his brother. I mean, he made a cock his mascot. While ingenuity and hard work definitely played a part in making the Kellogg brand what it is today, I think timing also played a huge factor in its success. Cereal came at the perfect time following the Industrial Revolution when many people were leaving their farms to go and work as employees in factories. Instead of getting up early to make porridge or reheating some greasy leftovers from the night before, cornflakes was a convenient, ready-to-eat breakfast. Kellogg's Cereal Company led the pack in what became a multi-billion dollar industry. John was forced to pay the cost of the legal battle and he faded into obscurity and lost much of his credibility. The number of visitors at the sanitarium dropped dramatically during the Great Depression and by 1938, it closed its doors forever. John was left with $3 million in debt as John's career was dying down, Will was only just really becoming more and more successful. During the Great Depression, Will was credited with actually helping a lot of families make it through because he came up with this idea that instead of having to let his employees go, he just shorted all of them a few hours. Basically, he had four different shifts that only got six hours each. And so by this way, he was able to keep a lot more people employed. He was also known to be really generous, he gave to 
so many charities. He was really passionate about children. He developed the Children's Welfare Fund. And so Will had a really great reputation. Unfortunately for John, he seemed to kind of only get crazier as he got older. And John and Will went many years after a lawsuit not speaking to each other. But there was a point when Will heard that John was doing some really crazy things. Like he was working out in a G-string outfit, like even during the winter. I think Will was partly worried that John probably was making him look bad, but I'm, I'm sure there's probably a part of him that still loved his brother. So I don't know if it's out of the goodness of his heart or if he really just was worried that his brother was going to make him look bad. But regardless, it's said that he actually talked to his lawyers. He wanted to take John to court and force him to put more clothes on, but his lawyers are like, no, you're just going to waste money. Like that's nothing. You could never win that. And so anyway, they go years without talking. John died of pneumonia at the age of 91, nine years shy of his goal of 100. John and Will hadn't spoken for years prior to John's death, but it turns out that John had actually written a seven-page letter trying to make amends with his brother. Unfortunately, one of their employees hid the letter. One of the things I read said that John's secretary thought it was beneath him to apologize to Will, and so she hid it. Then I also read something else that said Will's employees were worried that hearing from John would upset him, and they just, they hid it from him. So either way, this letter was stashed away somewhere and Will actually only found out about the letter when he was on his own deathbed. Somebody tells him about this letter. He he sits straight up in bed and he says, my goodness, why didn't someone tell me about this before? It's pretty clear that both John and Will shared some pretty creative genetics, even if one of them was a wackadoodle. And it makes you wonder what they could have accomplished if they had simply worked together. I hope you guys enjoyed today's video. If you did, I would love it if you would share it with a friend. I spend so much time on these episodes, and so I would love if more people were able to discover this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. I kind of just wish someone had explained to him that that wasn't a seizure.